Oh, well, 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 here it is again. This is the Fat Paramotor Podcast. I'm Sean, uh, the Fat Paramotor Guy. Hey, listen, the co-host today, Daniel Jones, um, is going to introduce a very, very special guest. He's going to introduce himself. <laughs> Good evening, Sean. <laughs> Daniel Jones. Dan. Daniel <laughs> Jones is both the co-host and the guest. Daniel, welcome. Welcome back to the oh, Fat Paramotor Podcast. Oh, it's good to be back, mate. Yeah, Christ, it's been a while, hasn't it? Oh, it has, mate. It's amazing how the time passes by. But, but a little dicky bird tells me that you've you've been quite busy recently, Daniel. Mate, what have you been up to? Uh, well, I just thought I'd go for a little bit of a fly over a, over a week's period, and I've uh, just finished the John O'Groats to Lands End route by Paramotor. I understand by Paramotor. Yes, yeah. Oh my God! I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I have seen, of course, I've been following on the social media and things like that. But that is one hell of a mission, mate. John O'Groats to Land's End by Paramotor. How far is that? Um, I ended up flying 790 miles uh, in total. Uh, The van, by the time we got home, covered 2,222, because we're in Norfolk, you see. So you've got to go up and then down, then back again. But yeah, 790 miles on a Paramotor. Oh my gosh. 790 yeah. miles. So if, <laughs> for those who don't know, because uh, a few of our uh, American cousins and, and elsewhere around the world have been listening to the Fat Paramotor podcast, uh, sort of John O'Groats to Land's End uh, is a famous thing for us because it's the very north tip um, of our beloved country down to the very south tip. So John O'Groats is up in Scotland and Land's End down on the um, on the end of uh, of England, so seven hundred and something miles. So Daniel, what put this mad idea into your brain? Um, I think it stems from each year I sort of set myself a flying goal. So twenty nineteen was learn to fly. Twenty twenty was reach a hundred flights, and then twenty twenty one. I was like, you know, let's just go a little bit further. Let's fly the length of the country. <laughs> um, just fancied the cross-country challenge, really. I've been putting a lot of time into, like, the competition stuff, which we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, but, yeah, I just thought, you know, let's crack into a proper challenge, you know. I want to really push myself this year. And um, I was just extremely lucky to be in the position I was to be able to do it, you know. Like, um, I had had the flexibility from work. My dad's retired, um, so he he drove the support vehicle, um, being my half-converted camper. And it just, yeah, we we moved the date about three times. And, um, yeah, we <laughs> the weather forecast was supposed to be a nice high pressure with a bit of a tailwind pushing me down the country. And it was totally the opposite because, uh, you know, great great British weather and all that business. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's an incredible feat. Has it ever been done before then by a paramotor? Yeah, it's been done a few times. I think the first time was by Andy Phillips um, in 2000, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and then by a few others as well. Uh, a group of four did it. Um, Henry, John, Alex um, and Brian. Uh, they were all on four strokes and they did it as a, as a group. Um, and there's definitely another group. Um, I think Alex uh, Ledger as well. He's He's taken a group. So there's probably less than... Or around fifteen people that have done it in total, I would say. Okay, so that's pretty incredible going then. And and do you all did you all follow the same route? Was it basically as the crow flies, or or did you have to change your route because of the terrain and the weather and things like that? Yeah, I mean that's a good, that's a good point. Like I think on a uh, macro scale, you kind of um, 
you've, you're going as much as the crow flies. But like on a micro scale, yeah, you are dodging bits of land. Like, for example, uh, I had to go across a couple of bodies of water. So you'd get to the thinnest point before you'd even cross. Um, at that point, I had like quite a low cloud base. So the risk was quite high in trying to cross it and the, the wind was pretty strong as well so i think it's you know it's as you are flying that route you you've got a planned destination you're trying to get to but it all depends on actually once you've taken off and what the weather's really like compared to what the forecast is as i learned um the forecast was wrong quite a few times on this trip yes. um but you you just fly to the conditions you know there's um basically like you've got to obviously look out for your altitude you can get to because like scotland for instance uh at one point i was like 2900 foot up but probably only 400 foot off the ground you know right. it's, <laughs> it's quite an altitude but you're not actually that high that's why they call it the highlands daniel didn't yeah. you know man yeah yeah well i don't know flying in lincolnshire mate it's quite flat around there isn't yeah it? <laughs> that's right it is it is indeed although i guess you weren't having to dodge the uh the military airfields like you, you did when you came to fat paramotor hq yeah a little bit of weaving about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so listen um you know you'd, obviously this was a personal challenge um but you also decided to uh to do something good with this what, what did you do there daniel can you tell me yeah, so th when you get a, a challenge like this, it sort of goes hand in hand with with charity, really, doesn't it? So why not um, do a, your, your bit for um, the charity that's close to your heart? And um, the charity I actually raised money for was Alzheimer's Research UK, um, something that you know affects most families, if not everyone, um, which was made clear from the challenge by the people we met and spoke to. Um, but yeah, it was my dad's parents passed away about three years ago. Um, my granddad suffered with Alzheimer's for pretty much 13 years and my nanny with, um, vascular dementia for about 10 years. Um, I've got fond memories of them as a kid. Um, but the opportunity to know them as, as an adult, um, in, in an adult capacity, you know, have those conversations you would you wouldn't do as a as a kid it was just stripped you know you you couldn't by the time they were sort of in their final stages that they, they were just shell shells of people really and it was just so awful to see and it's a, a disease you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy so um yeah i just tried to do my bit really yeah no no i completely understand terrible disease as you know daniel uh, i work in in the healthcare uh, and I see a lot of dementia, and it's actually awful. So I think, uh, you know, using something, you know, um, like this to, because it obviously generates a lot of interest from people in the community, uh, you've used that as a force for good, um, and you've been raising money, and apparently the money's still coming in. So um, so we're going to use this opportunity right now just for you to let people know um, where they can sort of log in to, to consider don donating if they want to do that kind of thing. Daniel, wh where would you tell them to go to, to help with that? Yeah, so the, what I've been saying to people all the way down the trip is, you know, I understand what COVID effects had on people and people can't afford to donate to charities so much um, at the moment. But charities have suffered, you know, they've lost all the opportunities to raise that money over the, that period. So if people are willing and happy to to donate, um, I've got a Just Giving page. The title of the challenge I've called Flight Against Alzheimer's. Um, and if you type that into Google with my name, it should return something. You know, if not the stories I've been posting, it should definitely return the Just Giving page. So yeah, if people 
feel like they can donate um that's amazing it's also um you know i appreciate people just sharing it because realistically the more eyes i can get on um alzheimer's research uk the work they're doing and helping people understand what it's about it means just as much as any donation does as well and the support's been so phenomenal so far already i I can't believe it it's been amazing yeah, absolutely. So creating awareness, um, you know, is tremendously useful as well as uh, as well as donating towards these charities. But it's uh, it's flight against Alzheimer's. I will leave some details uh, in the show notes um, for people to be able to look up and and to see. So right now, uh, how much have you raised so far for Alzheimer's UK? So if we um, add up the just giving total with the um, gift aid and also the match funding we received from Original Cottages, uh, we're coming up close to £13,500, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal amount. (laughs) What was your target, mate? What did you think you were going to be you were going to (laughs) be getting to? So I. I've got an email um, string between me and and the rep from Alzheimer's Research UK. And uh, in the email, I say, uh, they asked me how much I'm expecting to raise. And I've said, you know, I think £100 is probably quite easily doable. £1,000 would be like amazing. That'd be really good. But like, I'd love to aim for like £10,000, but you might need to set my expectations for that one. And um, they suggested between like 1000 and 3000 is probably a good place to start. So consider it's 2021. I set the target for 2021 and uh, we we smashed that. We smashed it. It's insane. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I I think the reason that it was smashed is because of the strength of the paramotor community. And I saw the bonding mm. on the social media. Uh, everybody was behind you. People were enjoying, uh, you know, watching your videos, seeing where you'd got to and things like that. And of course, as everybody knows, Daniel has a YouTube channel um, and you catch him around the socials. I think that was all. I think it was the strength of the paramotor community. Everybody seemed to be behind you, Daniel, you know, and and I think it was um, it felt like an achievement for everybody. Do you think that's fair to say? I, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, the, when I originally put out the rough route down down the country, uh, I asked people, is there any fields that I can land in along this route? And just the people who came back to me, it was so hard to keep up with the messages. But people were just going, oh, good luck. And yeah, you can land here. And, you know, I had to put this all into spreadsheets and Google Maps and get myself all sorted. <laughs> and it was just so hard to get back to everyone. And I did, you know, eventually. And just throughout the trip, the support was so good. Like everyone just wishing me good luck. Um, you know, people we even met who who didn't know what paramount was, who would where I'd land, they'd be like, "What the hell is that thing on your back?" <laughs> you know, people just bring you like a cup of tea. People like just have a chat with you. But it, you know, it really put into perspective why I did that challenge. Um, actually, how much it affects people. Yeah. So. Alzheimer's Research UK estimate that uh, one in three people born today, if there isn't a cure found, will develop dementia in their lifetime. So I know there's not three of us here, but, you know, it could quite easily be either me or you, Sean. You know, it's so scary. (laughs) It'll be me, mate. It'll definitely be me. I think think it started 20 years ago with me, I'll be honest with you. It's so scary. Uh, Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Look, I think it's a wonderful thing in multiple ways. I mean, the the money's one thing. I think it was a great thing for the paramotor community uh, in the UK. It was a great experience. 
Uh, and of course, I think it was a, another very positive promotion of, of paramotoring and, and the people that are involved in the sport. Yeah. So, so planning it then, you know, when you, you planned it, what was the tactic then? Because obviously you've, you've got to think about landing sites and stuff. And uh, uh, how, how did you plan it all out? Did you work out how far you would, you would need to fly? And did you preset landing sites or did you kind of do it by air? work it out last minute was my game yeah. <laughs> uh, if you give yourself a massive time scale you're gonna do it like the last minute so i got i got these fields in in place so i knew roughly where i was gonna go i'd spoken to several people who either do long distance flying um like dan burton people who had done the route before so you know uh henry glass and um simon westmore andy phillips um and James DePavey as well, who has actually got the record for doing it at uh, the quickest time, which is, yeah, I think he'd done over two days and I think 16 hours or something stupid like that. Um, so, yeah, I spoke to all these people and just got the sort of knowledge it took to um, what it took to do that challenge. Uh, also got some great insights of um, like cross-country flying from Mike Chilvers, my instructor, and, and Clive Bunce, the, the creator of the Bulldog Paramotor that I fly. Um, so, yeah, I just really was trying to call on as many people's knowledge as possible. Um, and then it was down to how I was going to react for flying for like, you know, four hours at a time. So the championship helped with that. So I was hitting four, four and a half hour flights at the championship. Um, so I knew that I could do that stint if I wanted to. I think the general consensus was you don't want to be doing four hours every single flight several times a day because you just you just get exhausted. You know, there's a lot going on with like dodging airspace. Um, okay, I was increasing the cockpit load by taking photos as well, but just the conditions are challenging as well. So um, really it was um, planning wise was making sure I could do that length of time if I needed to for a leg, sorting out where I was going to roughly land on each leg. Um, and then a lot of it's, it just comes down to all the prep and the flying bits quite easy. I think keeping up with the media was the hard, hardest. <laughs> so did you have any grief at all landing? Um, I, I never had anyone come out and visit me who was like you know sort of in ill ill mind get off my land yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um everyone i met was was really friendly um you know from the first flight i had i landed at a, a football pitch they came up they're like what the heck is that thing and then they stayed with me until my dad turned up um you know i landed in gretna green bang in the middle of the village um didn't find myself a bride um so <laughs> so, <no. laughs> oh, my gosh you come back um, with three children a bride and three children yeah <laughs> um but yeah no i've got brought a cup of tea then the only time i really um i think got told off was right at the end <laughs> at land's end because i landed right in front of the building that says land's end and looking back i, sh I should have called ahead and gone oh yeah i'm coming coming into land but it was just by the time i got there probably got a bit carried away and that was actually the safest place to land because the rest of it's all like ferns and bracken so this was like a, a strip of grass that it was nil wind hook hook turned it in and just and just landed i make it sound easy but you know i think <laughs> the launch and landing practice that i've done at wingland's uh really helped out there yeah, yeah abso um, absolutely so uh, must have been an emotional landing 
yeah, yeah, I felt like I could probably carry on, um, just run out of land. But I think after you sort of, you're like, oh, it's done. You then, the the adrenaline like disappears and actually you realise how tired you are. Yes. So I was going to bed at like 11 o'clock at night from clearing cards and, and getting things reset and charged and then waking up at half four in the morning. So you're doing that for seven days is, um, yeah, it does wear on you. It does, yeah. During the whole of this uh, this flying, you had some ground crew, didn't you? And that was your, that was your old man, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was following in your your van. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So we, um, I got him insured on it, and um, it's half converted in, into a camper. Um, I spent. So we travelled up to Scotland on the Sunday, Saturday night. I was still putting the electrics in the van. <laughs> um, it, it was half 10. I was screaming a 20 mil hole into the roof of the van, <laughs> just like apologizing to the neighbors. Um, it got to half three in, at night and I've vlogged all this stuff and I'm, I'm, I've looked at the footage and I'm just saying to the camera that I'm done. I've got to go to bed. You know, I'm knackered. I dropped the camera inside the house on the sofa and then out of nowhere, got this burst of energy and just like okay, went straight back out, pulled an all-nighter and didn't go to bed until the Sunday evening. The van was instrumental um, to this happening with my dad driving it, you know. Without him, I really wouldn't have been able to do it because he was picking up the fuel. He was doing the washing up in the morning, passing me a bowl of cereal whilst I was sleeping on the front seats. Um, I gave him the bed because, bless him, he's got to have a bit of uh, comfort. Medical. Yeah, when he's like 67, bless him. He's an old guy. <laughs> he needs his comfort. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think he was as knackered as I was by the end. He's done a serious amount of driving in that week and it's it, that's exhausting in itself, you know. I'd, I'm so happy that he was able to come with me because he's retired. You see, he was he could be as flexible as needed to be. Did you keep in contact by radio then, or anything like that, or was it was it mobile phone basically? Yeah, sort of a bit of bit of mobile and a bit of sort of. Well, I'd, I'd tell him where I was going to, so he'd have all the pins in the map. So I'd say, right, we're going to here now. Bef- about half an hour before I'd land, I'd give him a ring and say, right, I'm either going to make it or I'm not. Um, and I'm coming down here. You know, I, there was quite a few times where I was cut short from my final destination. And um, just make sure you land safely and um, use what three words, which is an incredible app, you know. Um, split the world into three by three meter squares and just sent him the link. And then he could just nav straight to me. It was so easy. Um, yeah, he'd let me go off first and um, he'd then catch me up. He's He was probably only like, 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops away from me at times. So really close by. So did he do any sort of um, driving and following you, keeping you in, in in visual sight, if you know what I mean? Or did yeah. he just drive off to the next next destination? Well, I had to send him off. Uh, at the end, I had to send him from Devon straight down to the bottom of Cornwall because the A30 is just a dreadful road when it gets busy, <laughs> just so he'd be there at the end. But um, he said to me that the... Out of all the length of the trip, there was only two times that he saw me um, because I'd be like either flying like as the crow flies or um, I think the times he saw me is actually when it was low cloud base and I was sticking by the main road, just, just navigating by that. So actually, you know, in that length, in that amount of time and, and length of journey, he only saw me twice. So it's not very many at all. You'd expect probably a bit more, but. 
Now, those um, who know you the best, Daniel, know that you fly um, with the Atom. You fly a Bulldog paramotor. It's got the uh, the Atom uh, engine or motor, as our uh, American and Australian cousins call it. <laughs> How did that fare then? Because that's a tiny little thing. It makes me chuckle <laughs> when I see you in it, you know. And I was kind of saying to the wife, that'll never make it from uh, from John O'Groats to land end. It'll have blown through three cylinders by the time he gets down there. But how did you find it then? Did you have any mechanical issues at all? Do you know what? The Atom and the Bulldog performed absolutely stunning. Um, they were really good all the way through. It was my fault at a certain point in the flight at Western Supermare uh, when I probably should have checked uh, my spark plug um, before I'd taken off. There's a video clip of me on the ground. Well, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right. And a couple of days previous, I'd lost full power um, and it just sort of bogged down to about half power and then come back again a bit all right for the next three hours. So... At the time I'd got to Western, I'd probably done about 25 hours, something like that. You know, that's a maintenance interval nearly, isn't it? So I don't, I physically don't know why I didn't check the spark plug before I took off. I just literally, I don't think you think about it when there's so much else going on and you're just trying to get down this, this route. Um, you know, like whenever I go and fly, it might be a week, two weeks between flights because I go at the weekends. Um and just like you'd have the time then to realize, oh, let's just check the motor and see everything's all right before I go. But this was just such an intense amount of flying. Um, I took off from Weston on my 11th flight. That flight was four minutes long. <laughs> I was airborne for three minutes. There's, the, there's a great video clip for people who haven't seen it. They'll see it in the highlights video that's coming out. I'm waving at these people sat, sat outside their camper van. And it takes me a minute to hit the ground. Uh, 40 seconds of that, I'm trying to nurse that motor back to good health. It was um, the spark plug had totally carbon bridged. Um, like it just built up so much carbon between the uh, the electrode and the arm. It's just, yeah, there was just no spark, basically. Do you know the problem? The problem was the waving, Daniel. You know, because... <laughs> Because this is what happens, you know, it reminds me um, of when you're at school, you know, when you see a group of girls, you know, sort of yeah. sat near the stairs and things. <laughs> so what you do is you walk and try and do your cool walk. And when you do trip that, over. you always trip over a bag, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'll tell you a story, which is a slight deviation from paramotoring. But it was a few, quite a few years ago, I was a little bit younger, but I had a boat in Hartlepool Marina and it was a flash boat. It was a Dural Citation. It got these twin petrol engines in it. It, it it was like shit off a hot shovel, this boat was. I couldn't afford to run it, though. It cost you about £100 just to sort of whiz it round the estuary there in Hartlepool. But we went out one sunny day, me and my friends, and the boat was called Blue Gente. If anybody still owns Blue Gente, let me know. But we came into the lock in Hartlepool. We'd been for this blast round with this boat. And as we came towards the lock, you know what you do when you have a boat that, that screams across the water, you know? <laughs> Is you, when you're young and you're wearing sunglasses, you scream across the water yeah. right up to the lock so that you're throwing up yeah. lots of water and you look like you're really cool <laughs> or you think you do. And then you knock the power off just as you get towards the lock and, and sort of sail in. Mm. So we did that. We came into the lock. And what you normally do when you go through the lock is you come through the first lock gate. They close the lock gate behind you. 
They fill the lockup with water, you float up to the next level, they open the other gate and you drive out into the marina. So we screamed up, we went into the lock, we got music pumping, sunglasses on, stood on the deck thinking all the <laughs> girls are looking at us and things. And I could hear this, it sounded like a voice in the background and things and I couldn't hear it to move the music. So I turned the music down and it was the harbour master. <laughs> who'd been shouting at me for the last five minutes while we were stood there with music pumping, saying, Blue Gente, go straight through, both locked doors are open. And it was that time of the day when the water level in the marina is the same as the water level in the sea, and the locked gates had been open, and we just screamed in, tied up, and stood there with the music pumping. So I don't know how we got on to that, Daniel, but that, Daniel, that was you, mate, wasn't it? Waving, waving. yeah, it was. Wa- yeah. Waving at the people yeah. as, they, as they went past. I should have accepted I was having an emergency landing earlier. Um, in in the final twenty seconds of that flight, I'm just I'm out of options now. I haven't got any power, and I'm coming down on top of this hedge, right? And there's a I'm just through this little gap, and there's a tree just to my left, and it grabs my wingtip and turns me from the influence of lift from my glider into a pendulum, <laughs> in into the ground. The scream on that video is like yeah. It's a proper oh. scream, mate, because it's before I hit the ground as well. Like, you know? like a girl. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you yeah. scream like a girl? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a great uh, bit of video. It's great. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Oh, There's a serious side, though, isn't there, because when you think about yeah. it, because, you know, we've talked about before sort of uh, pilotage and, and things like that, but, you know, fatigue, same with driving, you know, same with piloting, mm. it, it affects your, your skills. And I guess, you know, that's... Uh, there is a safety consideration that comes into into play Absolutely. Uh, with knowing that you've flown for a long time, you're quite fatigued, and your judgment uh, is bound to impair shortly by, by the time you get to Land's End. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's um, So the actual hours I did was 34 hours, five minutes, and looking at probably average figures each year, pilots probably see like, what, 30 to 40 hours, yeah. sometimes 50 hours. You know, it's it's pretty much like a year's worth of flying in a week's time. That's a lot, a lot of a flying, you know. like You are exhausted. You really are. And, like, the amount of times um, I cocked up on this, this week's worth of flying, I haven't had that much bad luck, let's call it, in the two years I have actually been flying, you know, it all happened in that week. Like it really was. It just goes to show how knackered you get and you're, it affects your decision-making. It really does. Yes, no no doubt about that at all. And I guess you really have to try and keep your wits about you because it's one thing talking about the discomfort of, mm. of sort of flying when you're tired and things like that. But there's a there's a very real safety issue, particularly when you're, you're doing what you're doing because um, a lot of skills are involved in, in doing what you're doing. It's not just sort of... Uh, aviating there's all the navigating and communicating going on at the same time mm. and uh, a lot a lot going through the brain there would you do it again oh you know what i think i probably might do you know it's it's a hell of an experience it's it's really really good fun um it is challenging though you know i did fear for my life a couple of times one being the landing in the tree um incident where i thought i was going to break my legs um and the other one was um in scotland i was uh took off high wind and um i was being blown over over the top of a mountain into the lee side of this hill and there was a valley below um and i was full trimmed out 
full chat on the atom, which is not very much thrust, I might add. <laughs> um, and just see, I was just sinking like a stone. I couldn't tell you what my descent rate was without checking the logs. Um, but I trimmed in to gain, a, and I was still going down. And my only hope was to fly directly at this mountain and hope hope I'd get some lift off of and over it. And I did. I got around it and then turned 90 degrees to go downwind on a downwind leg. And I hit 117 kilometers an hour, which is wow. flipping quick on a little <laughs> on a little aircraft like that when you're close to the ground. Yeah. yeah. Christ. So what's, yeah, so 117 kilometers. What was your actual airspeed then? You speed through the air at that stage. Uh, I'm going to give it to you in kilometers now because I don't know the um, the uh, conversion because for competitions I work it all out in kilometers. Um, I normally fly sort of mid-trim is about 44k an hour. So it was like, yeah, more than more than double double the airspeed. Full speed bomb at 56k. So, um yeah, quick, really quick. <laughs> how yeah. long did it take you in total and how many days? You said it was 36 hours of airtime, but how how long, you know, sort of how many days did it take you? 34 hours of, of uh, airtime. Um, yeah, but um, it was from Monday the 16th of August to Monday the 23rd. So full week, uh, evening to evening, but the Saturday got rained off um because there was just thunderstorms and rainstorms all over the uk so uh it was actually quite nice to just have a rest really i got caught up with some video i cropped some video out for for media and stuff like that and some photos so that was quite nice um to have that already like uploaded online so when they they got in contact with me afterwards you could just go here it is and i didn't have to worry because i'm not okay i make videos but i'm not that proactive at doing them <laughs> I just I, I like filming them. I like doing the flying, but then actually sitting down to edit is a bit of a chore for me. And then I just love the final product at the end. So it's like I don't know. It's the middle bit. I'm not so keen on. <laughs> I know exactly. People don't realise how time consuming it is to make a video. You know, and uh, I think the you know guys and girls who who do make videos and enjoy it because it is an enjoyable hobby, but mm -hmm. it is fairly time consuming. You know, you can you can eat away days sometimes just just putting out a ten or a fifteen minute video easily. Talking about media, so I know, of course, that the highlight of all this is getting to come on the Fat Paramotor podcast <laughs> as both a guest and the co-host, of course. But you had quite a lot of media interest, didn't you? Was you surprised by that? Who? Who picked up on this story? Um, so the BBC helped out quite a lot, um, and ITV did a bit as well. Uh, but I think what really sort of sent it home and why it was quite successful was because it was, um, you know, quite a personal issue to me. So I'm crying quite a lot in, in the footage. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, something that affects everyone. It's for charity and it's on a weird contraption that flies. You know, people don't normally see that. So they're like that's a bit blooming weird. Oh, that's pretty good. Good that he's doing that really. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's why it worked so well in the media. Um, but the, the guy who really helped was Martin Barber from, um, a local BBC station. I, I actually did my commercial drone license with him, um, in the same class. And I've just kept in contact. And, um, when I flew over the local international airport, which is quite a small international airport, really. <laughs> um, he said, next time you do something absolutely stupid, give me a ring. So I, 
I rang him and I said, I might be flying the length of the country this time. And he was like, right, okay. I better get sick of you ringing him. Uh, yeah, he does now, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've got him to thank quite a lot for it. And, um, yeah, made it into national papers and actually onto the BBC um, breakfast um, programme, which was incredible. Like, that's, yeah, national TV, wow. <laughs> so tell me about that then. I want to know about the experience and if you go into sitting on the, on the couch there. what? Tell, tell me about that. What was that like? Yeah, the famous red couch. Um, they called me up on Tuesday and said, do you want to come on the breakfast show? Expect I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that'd be quite good. Next week or something like that. Yeah, tomorrow morning, I'm like, I've got to go to Manchester to get there. And for me, that's what, four hours, five hour drive? <laughs> I, I was at work and um, finished work, drove there. And at 1am, I'm setting up this paramotor in their studio. Right? <laughs> I've drained it of fuel, just like, please don't stink them out. Because this room's like <laughs> tiny they're working in. Um we get in the next morning at 7am um, after a hotel sleep and um, yeah, it's a well-oiled machine there. They get you they get you in and out like really swift, but you don't feel rushed at any point. You know, they, they sort of bring you into one area. Oh, do you want a drink? Yeah. Bring you into the next area, get you mic'd up. You're sat there watching the live BBC breakfast show that's happening in front of you and you're like, flipping heck, I'm on that in a minute. <laughs> You go in, they sit you down and you have a chat with them and um, yeah, it's all done within about 10 minutes and then you're off and out and uh, yeah, there's just a friendly bunch. The security is, yeah, really high there though. They, yeah, you've got to tell them who you are and all this business. You can't go anywhere and yeah, don't touch anything. <laughs> it's, just, it's the sort of people like me from gate crashing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, right. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Now, your dad uh, came and sat on the red couch with you, is that right? Yeah, he did. Um they were saying, I said to them initially, I said, oh, can, is my dad like coming as well? Is he allowed to come? And they're like, oh, well, you kind of only really want to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, but like he has done all the driving. He was like instrumental to this like happening. So we've got to have him there, really. And they were like, oh, yeah, OK, didn't realise. <laughs> um, but but you don't. It's the people behind the scenes that actually make it so, like possible to do. You know, sitting in a seat for three, four hours is, like I say, okay, you've got the airspace and stuff like military stuff to dodge at times and and it's endurance, but actually having the support from everyone is really crucial to being able to do that route um, and just flying that length for distance really. And so, you know, so I can't thank my dad enough for, for him offering to help. It's, it's a bit like being the front man in a band, isn't it, there, Daniel? <laughs> Everybody gets to see you and you take the glory and things, but really it's the it's the people in the background creating all the magic, eh? Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, you know, um, I, w I don't think I would have wanted to do it on, like, uh, another paramotor. The Bulldog was so comfortable because it's high hang point, you see. Yes. Okay, you've got, you've got less weight shift than maybe, like, a mid-hang point machine, but it just soaks up so much of the turbulent stuff that I was flying through. Um, and actually, I've got quite a strong stomach for thermals, um, but on my second flight, I was being absolutely battered for three hours. Like, absolutely battered. The worst air I've ever ever flown in to the point where i made it across the water crossing i was trying to because i was flying into a headwind and it was like the lee of these mountains in scotland and i made it over this water crossing it went dead flat smooth and i was like thank god for that i've made it out and i remember giles fowler telling me he's he said when it gets tough 
And bear in mind, this is the second flight, right? <laughs> the second flight, the second day. In. And he goes, when it gets tough, just remember why you're doing it and who you're doing it for. And I was sitting in that seat thinking, Christ, if it's like this all the way through, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I was thinking about my grandparents and just like, just breathing through it. It went dead flat smooth. I could see the landing field. I was making it to Gary Williamson's place in, in Scotland on the Black Isle. Beautiful round there, by the way. Um, and... I just got bumped around a few more times. I look to my right and I've got a reserve down to my right and a camera <laughs> and I've got my um, flight deck dead in front of me and I've looked to my left and I've got, all right, throttle and a bit of clear space and I I threw up twice off the left-hand <laughs> side of my paramount. <laughs> oh yeah, I've never, never been to the point where I was going to be sick, but that was something I really was. It was beautiful to watch. The sun hit this sick as it came what? out. <laughs> oh, Jesus <laughs> You can hear it in the video and see a few splutters come up, but it's... There's yeah. no wonder the BBC picked up on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a, exactly. I hope you were flying over a village at the time. I think there was a house below me, but I don't know whether they got it or not. You know, it's incredible how, how quickly sick dries on a paramotor. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, honestly, Daniel. Yeah, and I bet the seagulls were well fed then and followed you all the way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit of just right from the morning breakfast, yeah. Oh. <laughs> God, so, so honestly, so so, what have we got so far? Then screamed like a girl, cried yeah. like a baby, and yeah. vomited. So that that about sums up the yeah. fact. Those are all the bits that nobody saw. These are all the bits that I predicted, though, Daniel. I knew this would happen. <laughs> yeah, I've, you just don't know what you're going to get until you, you're doing it. Really, um, they most of them all on video. Um, so they'll be going up in the highlights and then I'll be doing a feature piece as well. So looking forward to getting that done and out because, um, yeah, it'll be a hell of a memory to look back on. And I just, wow, like I just can't sum it up enough than it's just such an amazing experience. I would so imagine good. so. And it's kind of that, uh, that summit thing. I remember, you know, many years ago when I was uh, younger and fitter, I, I was into sort of mountains and things like that, walking up mountains. Mm. And it was you know, I never enjoyed walking up a mountain, but what you did enjoy was hitting the summit and then getting back down again and having that yeah. beer and and uh, uh, the sort of the summit fever they used to call it, didn't they? Just you know, wanting to wanting to get there and stuff. <laughs> so sometimes the actual process isn't always that enjoyable, but it's very rewarding afterwards when you look back. Mm. So one of the things I was kind of interested in is, you know, as you're flying along and you're you're a, you're looking for somewhere to land, you kind of got some idea of where you're going to land and things yeah. like that. Uh, how confident? Because sometimes things can look very landable um from three or four hundred feet but when you actually get sort of a bit lower they're they're, they're less so um how, how did you find finding landing sites did you find it was fairly easy or was it a challenge did it worry you at all um yeah it's a bit of a mix really sean because um i've spent a lot of my time doing spot landing practice you know when i go to the airfield it's about an hour and a half drive and i want to get the most out of my time there so i spend a lot of it you know spot landing practices so I guess I had the, a good enough skill set to do it, but you're then, you don't quite know what you're going to get. You don't know if you're going to have trees around the site or, and hopefully, you know, you the, the people you've asked for landing fields, their field is, you know, the ones they regularly take off and land at, so they're going to be okay. But the times when I was forced to land through either fuel or light or rain, um, 
the key that I found best was look for a football pitch. I landed in so many football pitches <laughs> and just because you know that they're cut and they're hard, hard ground. Um, at no point um, did I like find that, you know, that was like unsuitable if it was like, you know, a residential park, you know, they were all, they were all good quality landing spots. But there was times where it was like, you know, I was flying over the cane gorms and stuff where it is unforgiving terrain. And it's like, you you just have to be so on your A game that if anything does happen, you need to be making that decision early. And I think, you know, I've, I've covered the, the hardest part first, really, in Scotland being so treacherous whilst I was still um, so aware. And I think, you know, Clive Bunce was saying to me about, yeah, that's the right way around to do it, you know, because you'll be, you'll have that mental capacity still to make good decisions um he's definitely right there um because you know the Cairngorms is so un- like is unforgiving and you just you have to follow the a9 really round um and there was times where i had low cloud blocking me in and um probably didn't make the best decision to carry on flying but the point i was at was you know there was the a74 next to me and there was a quiet road which used to be the main road through it's just you know a two-track road and that was my landing option. You know, I had big power lines to my right-hand side, a motorway to my left, and there was just this this tiny little road that I was following. It was like I'm clagged in all the way around. It's sort of raining a bit, and it's like if I go down, and I'm pretty sure I've got a video of that saying if I go down, it's it's on this road, and I've like already accepted that. Is that a sensible move to do in your normal everyday flying? Probably not. Like really, it's... Um, a trip like that you do get um in a state of mind where you're you're pushing on harder than maybe you should do because i was flying in stuff that you just wouldn't normally fly in you know i was especially like western superman the wind was really strong um lee um uh masters and paul smith were there and they were like you wouldn't catch us up in that and i'm like launching and fighting with this glider on the ground to get off i took off in two two or three steps at full trim out you know like it's like it's just conditions like that are just beyond what what a fun really um, I, I remember yeah. um when i learned to fly as you know i well when i learned to paramotor that was uh in australia mm. um with with matt, matt fox uh, fox air sports and he um always said something that i'd actually been taught when i learned to fly light aircraft many many years ago but he said when you're flying he said you want to be continually having a mm. landing zone inside yeah so all the time so if anything happens you already know where you're going to be landing and you've got it in your head what you're going to do to get there and as you pass that one pick your next landing zone mm. and things were you doing things like that or 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 was you just too fatigued or too busy in your mind to be doing that all the way down no no def- definitely doing that yeah like it was um it was harder to do in in scotland um uh in sort of like sort of mid scotland sort of area once you were past sort of the Cairngorms and, and a bit beyond that towards Stirling, it's then sort of flattened out a little bit more, which is quite nice um, because it was less stressful in that sort of sense. Um, so, yeah, definitely always picking a landing spot. I was skipping across, going back to the Cairngorms again, but there was just like a little gravel track that you could see you could get a van down, but it would be like hours by the time they got there. Um, so just following those really. Um, so you knew you could sort of land there and, and 
get someone to you. Um, like further on down in in uh, Devon, uh, John Pavitt uh, came out and met me in the sky. Um, he was saying that, you know, they look like big fields from up here, but actually you get down close and they're a slope. Yes, <laughs> so you've yeah. got to then land on a slope. So they look nice in green fields, but actually until you're close to them, you don't really appreciate, you know, the angle that they're at. Um, but yeah, it was. I think it was... And I remember um, Paul Francis saying this to me. He said, "You, because I was telling him I'm probably going to have to push it back later in the year again." He was saying, "You know, the time you plan on doing it now, August September, the fields are going to be cut. You're going to have a lot more landing options." And I was, I didn't even think about it, you know, at the time. And it's it's all these tiny little details that, you know, um, just speaking to as many people as you can, you you actually start to realise there's so much to it, and there's so much information to to take on board especially as a solo pilot you know um i think it was uh the conversation i had with henry and, and his gang you know um who, who'd done it before said that are you doing it on your own is there any chance you could take someone else with you because you'll then have someone else to bounce off and uh, make better decisions that way and i think you know there there's a lot of value in that as well yes. um i guess i was a bit bit stubborn in that i kind of wanted to do it for me with with my dad because i wanted to spend the time with my dad albeit i would be in the air and he'd be on the ground but it was the evenings and mornings and stuff that actually like it was it was nice to spend the time with him and bring us together so yeah um back to your question um yeah always look for a, for an out you always need somewhere to land and if you haven't got somewhere to land um how are you how long's your walk out to a road or are you even going to be able to land without hurting yourself and at that point it's you could quite be dangerous you know like that's not very good english but <laughs> um yeah it could be quite quite dangerous you know it's the english language we we can we can make it what we want can't we <laughs> any word that's we it. say is english isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's interesting that you said though about football fields i have to add a little snigger in the back of my mind because um I remember when I was learning to fly in uh, back in Australia and, and my instructor was about, you know, 1,500 kilometres away from where I actually lived. So uh, in those periods between instruction, um, when I was going out to do a little bit of practice, uh, I was looking for somewhere to uh, to fly my paramotor or, mm. you know, to fly the wing, should I say, into ground handle and things like that. And I thought, oh, I know where I'll go. I go to the football field. And it's on one of the videos that I did in actual fact. And um, mm. all the football fields in Australia make the private big signs saying keep out. It's not like the UK <laughs> in America. You know, you can, you, can go, you can go down to the school football field, can't you, at the weekend and kick your yeah. ball about and things like that. They don't have none of that there, mate. It's quite tightly regulated, Australia. Sorry, sorry to my Australian friends, but it is quite tightly <laughs> regulated there. Uh, listen, mate, it sounds like an absolutely phenomenal trip. So what's going to be the next thing then to do i mean uh, i asked you earlier on if you do it again and you kind of hinted that you would but secretly mm. i would imagine that probably um uh, a similar challenge but doing something different might be on the card uh, and i had to think as well with you saying that other people had done the old <laughs> john O'Groat to land's end is there not a challenge out there that's not being done or are you keeping it under your hat there uh dan something nobody's done that you fancy being the first one to do mm, i'd I, without properly looking into it, I don't know if there's a challenge that I'd want to be the first one to do. I'd definitely give it a go if I could think of one. Don't get me wrong. But um, next year, I think I'm going to have a bit of a break. I've got a uh, sort of a video project in 
planning as as we speak, which is going to involve quite a lot of the community, hopefully as well. So hopefully visiting a lot of people next year. Um, but the year after, 2023, and actually the day after I'd finished, we were traveling back home, stopped in at Bulldog Paramotors and just for a service on the motor because it's on the way home and uh, started the conversation with Clive Bunce about how we can go about attempting the height record. Um, so uh, instead of distance this time, it's distance going up. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's going to be, you know, oxygen tanks, proper equipment, because it's going to be like minus 40 degrees up, up yes. altitude. Um, I'd love to go for the world record, um, but I think the the UK record is currently held by uh, Giles Fowler at 21,750 feet, I believe. Okay. Um, and then the world record is actually held by Ramon Merialis, um, which is just below 25,000 feet, which is insanely high. I don't really like the coal either, mate, so <laughs> it's yeah, going be interesting. Uh, no, no, I know. And I would imagine because the air is pretty thin up there, um, mm. you're, you're either going to be flying along pretty fast, aren't you, or you're going to need a fairly big wing. Is that how? What kind of stuff do you need for altitude then? Power and wing size? Yeah, from early sort of like... Um, looking into it i need to speak to the people i definitely need to speak speak to ramon and um, karen skinner who holds the female um world record and just see what they've used and and what's worked for them um especially giles as well he's so close to me um in in the uk that we can we chat all the time um and he's saying you know you get into a bit of a weight spiral where you know bigger isn't always better then you've got to account for that with more lift when you get up to altitude like you say you've got thinner air so you've got a slower climb rate by that point you've burnt more fuel as well so you're going to run out of fuel mm. before you can climb any higher you've got oxygen to think about um and a backup tank as well but also keeping below you know 70 kg which in the uk is, is paramount really isn't it so um yes uh it, there's going to be a lot of thought going to it for one flight <laughs> um which will probably be a good good two years i reckon of worth of planning and and testing and and uh just yeah might have a, a pre-attempt of it i don't know yet um yeah but likely it'll be a big wing uh a big motor but isn't too big that you then start to get into that weight spiral you know because i think it's a fine balance that's definitely the the goal yeah it's very difficult isn't it and of course um you can try and do these things uh, in calculations mm. but modeling things um it never quite uh, never quite gets it right neither so a bit of experience is probably needed and uh, absolutely and as you say maybe may, maybe a bit of a trial and error so Oh, listen, mate, you, you're definitely the paramotor guy, aren't you, here at the moment in, in the UK and stuff. And um, um, there has been some weird and wacky stuff done on paramotors um, over the years. Remember, who was the Spanish guy who um, who tried to get the record for doing the, the most amount of, um, oh, what do they call that, bar not infinities, is it, you know? Sort of the oh, infinities. Not sure who it was, but yeah, I've heard about it. Oh, mate, so... Uh, I remember watching what I don't know whether he's repeated it, but um, uh, he he tried to do it in the United States, and they've got they had some weird law there that you had to carry pr a proper reserve chute that a, a a skydiver would use. Right. This is quite a heavy thing, yeah, yeah, uh, because it was the law there, and 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 I don't know you know what aspect of the law 
made that apply to him. So mm. he had to have this great big heavy thing strapped to his chest. And because of that <laughs> extra momentum doing these sort of rolls and things, yeah. uh, they were just too violent. So mm. he, he did about 20 or 30. I don't know. I'm guessing the thing. And then had to bottle out and stuff. But I remember watching thinking, that man's completely mad, you know. <laughs> I can barely do a wing over, mate, let alone an infinity. <laughs> do you not do you not think I've just got to have a look at this community now that there's got to be some degree of madness for people to want to uh, to want to do paramotors. It's gotta be, isn't it? It's gotta yeah. be. <laughs> there's gotta be. So uh, it's a crazy sport and things. But there's a there's a lot of go at, isn't they? Um you know, I think that's what's what's yeah. interesting. Um People are, are looking for new challenges with paramotoring in sort of different directions. And I know your uh, your heart's being into cross-country and things like that. And now you're having a look mm. at altitude and stuff. Uh, different people have different different ideas of what they want to do, like barrel rolling out of um, aeroplanes at 60,000 feet or <laughs> however high it was and things. Yeah, I think that what that what's beautiful about paramotoring is it really is you make of it what you want you know you maybe you like bimbling around for half an hour around an airfield and coming into land and that's good you know i enjoy that as much as going on across country you know so it really is you can do what you want with paramotoring it's just such a good sport I recommend it to anyone. <laughs> well, we'd, we'd, we're going to be coming to a close fairly soon then, Daniel. But what I want to know from you now is is just a quick recap of your, the best moments of your John O'Groats Lands and uh, Paramotor trip, the best and the worst moments. Just a recap of what they were for us. Oh, do you know what? I couldn't, and I've been asked this question several times, I still can't put my finger on the best moment because it was just so so good like the 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 things that i learned so i'll list off a few the things i learned you know as a pilot my advance my piloting skill the support from everyone was insane the views were stunning um and just like the experience and being able to do it so there's a lot there to go on like there's so many good points that i couldn't physically put like a, n- a name to the best one i really couldn't the worst point i think might not have been the tree crash actually i think it was being su- like sucked over the top of that mountain that was really scary that re- like the power of that wind was insane like it really was scary um so i think that was probably the worst just just simply because i felt like i couldn't do anything I was, it was totally out of my control well yeah daniel i mean it sounds like a fantastic thing i think in recap um, look, you know, this was um, a challenge for yourself. Uh, you've not been paramotoring very, very long. Um, mm. You know, I, I think you are um, uh, a new kid on the block uh, with this who's going to go a long way with the old, um, uh, <laughs> with the paramotoring and stuff. I can see it's very much in your blood. You're, you're achieving things very, very early on. You're going to achieve some great things in the future. I've got no doubt about it that you're going to be a big name in paramotoring. Hope so. Uh, here. Um, you've done a wonderful thing for uh, for Alzheimer's, uh, particularly here in the UK. Uh, but the yeah. thing I've learned the most about you here, Daniel, is that you scream like a girl, you cry like a baby, and you puke <laughs> like a puppy. And with that, this was the Fat Paramotor Podcast. You were listening to Daniel Jones there, who flew from John O'Groats to Land's End, puked a little, cried a lot... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and screams. Daniel, it's been great talking to you again. <laughs> Catch you in the next podcast. Uh.
Oh, it's lovely to be back. See you soon. Yeah, see you soon, Sean. <laughs>